You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. July 4th to our American friends. Hope you guys are having a good time down there right now. Hopefully the weather is nice. And happy belated Canada to everyone in Canada. And uh, it's been a hot, hot weekend here in uh, in Ontario and Montreal, so hopefully you're staying, staying cool. And um, so we have three questions today. The first one is about screens and monitors. Um, the second one actually isn't even a question, but it's just kind of an update from the uh, NADA conference, which is in New Orleans uh, this past week. And then that leads into our study of the week. So the first study, or the first question, sorry, is from Dan on Facebook. And the question is, is the imperceivable flicker of monitors and TVs primarily what makes them so difficult for the concussed? Uh, binocular dysfunction and light sensitivity can make screens difficult, but is the flicker a significant component? Um, well, that's a theory of it, and so um, a lot of the screens these days are LED backlit screens, and um, they have a, a refresh rate to them, so you can't really tell, but the screens that you're looking at are often flickering at a rate of 60 hertz. So basically 60 times a second, these screens are flicking on and off. And um, for somebody with a concussion, particularly in the acute phase, the theory is that flickering creates a lot of stimulation in various areas of the brain, and that stimulation can cause um, uh, increased cognitive fatigue, headaches, uh, migraines, visual sensitivities, light sensitivities, all sorts of different things like that. So the theory behind screens was potentially due to this refresh rate. That's why people would have these um, increased symptoms. And so when somebody's trying to get back to work or school, or even just interacting with their friends on on, on uh, social media and whatever else, uh, it can be very difficult for them. Now again, like I said, uh, just uh, a theory as to why that can increase symptoms. Other theories are just potentially the brightness of it. If somebody has light sensitivity, the brightness of the screen can just you know be be difficult for them to tolerate. Um, so there's other things that that you can do. And actually, there's a company that that we are in the process of partnering with right now called Iris Technologies. And what they make is a, a screen. It's a portable screen, and it actually attaches to your computer through a USB. But it's made not using a backlit LED. It's made using kind of e-paper. So if you can picture a Kindle, the way a Kindle would look, or uh, I think the other one's called a Kobo reader. Um, if you can picture what that would look like on a screen, it would be almost, it would look like paper, and then it would be just black ink. And so those don't have a refresh rate. They don't flicker the same way. And so what these guys have developed is a monitor that plugs into your computer so that you can see your screen in this e-paper format so that if you're uh, somebody who let's say you're a writer and you have to be able to sit in front of a computer and type or uh, let's say you're an accountant and you need to be able to view spreadsheets and work with things like that this allows you to be able to do that without having this backlit screen um, and they have a rental model for these they're just they're just brand new so you might not be able to get them yet but they're 
they're formulating a rental model in which you would rent the product for um, for a week for a certain amount of money, or you could just buy it outright. So uh, I think this is going to be very helpful for people with persistent symptoms. And um, um, there are some other low-cost options that you can do are um, just lowering the brightness of your screen, um, just taking frequent breaks to try and to try and get away from it so it's not always um, so um, bright. So that's it. That's it for screen. So the theory is that the flicker causes it, um, but again, there's no real scientific evidence to uh, to back that up. It's just a theory. Okay, so the NADA conference, which is the athletic training conference, was in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, and we had a few of our team members uh, in attendance. And the interesting thing that we found was there was about 20, 15 to 20 different concussion vendors that were there. However, all of them were just basically like a different version of sideline type testing or in-clinic baseline testing with, um, you know, sideline uh, components to it. Uh, and I mean, athletic trainers are always, you know, on the sidelines and that's, and that's kind of a, a big component of what they do. But we found it interesting that there, was, there wasn't a lot that had full programs around it. And so um, it seems like there's, there's a lot of versions of the same type of testing tools. Um, some of them have some evidence to support them, but many of them don't. Um, so if you're looking at that type of thing, you want to make sure that they have good sound test retest reliability, uh, good longevity to, to um, be a good test. But the big thing that we kind of took from that is that any one test in the baseline world has always been shown to not be sufficient. So if you're looking to just do a baseline test using one simple tool to like save you time um, and to be able to just run quickly on the sidelines, um, you're, you're thinking about this in the wrong way. Concussion baseline testing, for the most part, is not even necessary to formulate your diagnosis. The purpose of baseline testing is to have something at the back end when symptoms have gone away and you want to ensure that an athlete is actually ready to return to play. But all of the evidence shows that any one tool is insufficient for detecting the full spectrum of concussion. And so it seemed like a lot of the therapists that were there, unfortunately, were just looking for the quick fix. And that was something that kind of didn't sit well with us is that you have to understand what baseline testing is for. It's not just meant for you to be able to run on the sideline because it's actually not necessary. All of the evidence on there shows that baseline testing is not necessary for formulating your diagnosis or pulling somebody, removing them from play. It can help that in certain situations, but for the most part, it's unnecessary. What it's really for is making that return to play decision. And um, without having you know, the appropriate um, package that goes along with that and just trying to rely on any one tool, uh, you're likely missing a lot of a lot of what is encompassed in concussion. And this actually leads us into our study of the week. Yeah, we have a question first. Question. Uh, by BIA Arizona, can return to play decisions be made on the sideline and if so, by who? Well, if there's any suspicion that there's been a concussion, the answer is don't return them. Um, if, if somebody comes off and they're not having any type of symptoms and there was, or there was no mechanism of injury, um, then that athlete would be safe to go back and play. Um, if, you're, if you're using that as a potential argument for the purpose of baseline testing, most of those tests are affected by fatigue. So if you get somebody off the field and you run a scat on them, we know that best and balance is impaired for up to 15 minutes 
following just physical exertion. So having a baseline test isn't going to give you any more additional information than at that point. Really what you're looking for for your diagnosis on the sidelines or being able to pull somebody out is you need a mechanism of injury, meaning a sufficient contact where acceleration has been delivered to the head. And then you also need um, uh, symptoms immediately, you know, onset right after that or shortly thereafter that. And if an athlete comes off clutching their head after a big hit, that'll tell you right there that they've likely sustained the concussion. There's no additional testing that needs to be done. That person is pulled out of the game. If a person comes off and you see a big hit and you go up to them and say, hey, I just saw you get rocked there. How are you feeling? Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. Do you have any dizziness? No. Any headache? No. And do you, do you have blurred vision? No. Okay. That's, that's pretty much the extent of, of the sideline assessment there. Um, what you could do um, if you did have it would be to run somebody through some of those baselines. But like I said, there's, there, they can be impaired uh, by physical exertion alone. And so it might not be giving you the best or most accurate reading. The purpose, again, like I said, is if you have any doubt on the sideline, if there's any suspicion, you just pull that person out regardless. And when, ha when you have a baseline, it's important to use that at the back end in order to make your return to play decision a little bit better. Cool? Good? Did that shut down? Sounds good. Good? Okay. So this leads us into our study of the week. There was actually a study that came out just this week that was looking at education for athletic trainers in the United States. And so um, the it's pretty well known that a lot of healthcare curriculums don't have anything to do with concussion on them, which is what complete concussion management ex exists for, is to be able to provide that, that in-depth education on concussion and provide an evidence-based approach to appropriate management. Um, so healthcare practitioners in general have not received much in terms of education on concussion. We know this when we look at physician curriculums, physiotherapy, chiropractic, and now athletic therapy curriculums. So this was a survey actually done of education programs and educators in athletic training programs. And so survey questions collected, uh, the educational level, the years of experience of the teacher themselves, their sex, their role within the athletic training program, and the type of athletic training program at their particular institution. Participants were asked which position statement or consensus statement was used to teach sports-related concussion, and finally, which sports-related concussion management tools were taught to students in regard to evaluation management and return to play. And what they found was that most educators had an average of 18 years of AT experience. They accumulated a mean of 9.9 plus or minus 6.8 years of clinical experience before they transitioned into their educational role. So it seems like uh, about half of their time uh, was spent as an athletic trainer and now they've been teaching for about half the time. 99% of the education, ed, ed, educators were using the National Athletic Trainers Association position statement on sports-related concussion as their teaching tool. So they weren't using the international consensus guidelines. Uh, they were using the NADA uh, position statement, which makes sense since they are athletic trainers. However, that position statement was in 2014. So that is now uh, four years out of date. Um, but again, this study was done, in, uh, they collected data in 2016 for this particular study. So uh, that kind of makes sense as well. So I would bet that they've pro they're probably using a more updated version now. But anyway, at the time, they were using the NADA position statement. Clinical examination was most widely taught evaluation tool among respondents. 
over 80% of educators are teaching the clinical use and application of the SCAT-3, BESS, and computerized neurocognitive testing. However, only 71% of the educators are actually teaching stepwise progression, um, and less than 30% are, are teaching newer tools such as vestibular and ocular motor screening tools. And so there's a huge, and this is potentially why we saw so many people at the conference that were so interested in just getting the newest baseline technology out there for people to do on the sidelines. Everyone's looking for a, a cheaper, uh, faster test that they can do on the sidelines just to be able to kind of confirm their diagnosis. However, a big portion of what you do as an athletic trainer is making sure you understand the appropriate management, return to play, but also some of the rehab and stuff that goes into it when people aren't progressing that way. And so simply looking to take the easy way out and uh, administer the, the, you know, some sideline tests, uh, I think is, is the wrong way to look at this. Um, so the conclusions were educators are following recommended practices of teaching a multifaceted approach to sports like concussion evaluation and management. However, instruction is lacking on the stepwise return to play progression and newer management tools such as vestibular function and ocular motor function um, type of assessments. And so um, I think it fits hand in hand. I think as ATs, you guys are frontline providers and, um, you know, having more of a role and not just being able to determine something on the sideline, but assist with that appropriate return to play uh, and making sure you're using all the tools at your disposal and not just relying on a simple, um, quick and dirty way of doing it. You know, the cheapest isn't the best necessarily. So uh, any questions? Yeah, we have a question from Chris out of Phoenix, who's taking some time out of his holiday to join us. <laughs> uh, so there have been recent studies that have come out regarding physical exercise during the acute phase after sus sustaining a concussion, as long as symptoms are not exacerbated. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, this is great. I think this is uh, where the world is going with this. Um, so. It used to be, and we've talked about this before, it used to be that physical um, activity was limited until the symptoms had gone away. And what we, what the University of Buffalo found uh, when they started looking at this, they started looking at exercise as a tool for rehabilitation for people with persistent symptoms. So if your symptoms were still there in a month, they would run you through the Buffalo concussion treadmill test and then formulate an exercise protocol for you that was sub-symptom threshold. So meaning that if you had symptoms, as long as the symptoms weren't exacerbated when you were doing the physical activity, that was okay. And that started at about a month. Then eventually that worked its way down to three weeks through the research and then down to two weeks post-injury through the research. And there was, there's been a couple of studies recently actually in Canada. One of them was in Ottawa and it found that there was a direct correlation with recovery time and the, um, and the presence, or I guess the, um, onset of exercise within the first seven days of injury. So it seemed that people who exercise, and this was done in adolescents and children, and there was about 3,000 people in this, in this study. Um, now again, this isn't a randomized control study, so it's just an observational cohort, but the, what they found was that if, if the kids started exercising the first seven days, they had the best chance of having a faster recovery um, at, at day 30 and not having any persistent symptoms. Now, it could be argued that people are going to self-select. So if they're, if they're feeling pretty good and their concussion maybe isn't as severe, maybe that's why they started exercising earlier and they felt fine and that's why they recover faster. It may have nothing to do with the exercise in general. But then there was just another study 
down here in Toronto. And what they look, what they actually found using statistical calculations and actually controlling for a lot of these other potential variables, they found that people who initiated exercise even as early as day one had the best chance of having a favorable outcome. And they found that each day exercise was delayed resulted in a worse outcome. So if you exercise the day two, you got better quicker than if you started exercising at day three, but not as good as if you started exercising at day one. Now, this was done in a way just using statistical calculations, and so I wouldn't necessarily say to encourage your patients to start exercising on day one, but we at Complete Concussion Management, we start people exercising at day 10, even if they're symptomatic. So we start putting them on that sub-symptom threshold exercise protocol. And don't, just, just to say this, don't just tell the patient to just go and exercise because well, they'll always go overboard and then they'll be crushed for the next two days and then it'll be harder to get them back into it. So what you need to do is bring them into the clinic, actually run them through an appropriate protocol to find out what their threshold heart rate is, then you take the appropriate percentage of that heart rate and have them exercise at that level so that they're not going out and exacerbating their symptoms on a daily basis. But getting back to your question, I think that exercise in the early state is going to become the norm. It's not going to be kind of the exception as it has been. It's going to be, okay, day 10. Now research is going to come out showing that day five is even better. And then day three, and next thing you know, maybe we will be putting people through an exercise protocol at day one. But I don't think we're there quite yet. But I would say that exercising, um, I, we force people into it at day 10, provided they have no contraindications for it. Follow-up question here, is the Buffalo concussion bite test just as sensitive as the treadmill test? So there hasn't been any literature on the bike test itself. Um, I know that they've been using the, the bike test and actually Dr. Letty sent it over to me so I have a copy of it. We haven't, we haven't played around with it. I don't really, um, it's the way that it's structured is, is you, I think it's using more sophisticated equipment than what we have with it clinic it's it, they want wattage and and, um, and and like net power and stuff like that as they're scaling um, so we haven't really we haven't done it ourselves and so I can't really comment on on its effectiveness just anecdotally but it hasn't it also hasn't been studied uh, at all in the research yet so uh, I guess you just have to wait it out on that um, I mean the treadmill test is easy enough but unfortunately you know not everyone can tolerate uh, walking on a treadmill, and so a bike portion is going to be beneficial, but we just have to wait to see what the research shows. Good. All right. Thanks for your questions. Uh, we'll be back next week. Make sure you ask um, some questions for us so that we have some stuff to talk about. Uh, also, uh, we talked a lot about baseline testing. We did a full baseline testing webinar a few weeks ago. Uh, we have a link for that in the show notes. Put your email in there and we'll send you a copy of that webinar. Uh, it's about an hour long. It's all on baseline testing with all the research on it. So if you are interested in that, uh, make sure you put your you click on that link in our show notes and, uh, and, and type your email in for that. Uh, and send any questions into us so we can keep doing this on a weekly basis. See you guys. Happy Fourth of July. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.